And my life was radically changed. I was actually saved in 2010. I didn't grow up in church. I was like a Catholic by association because I'm part Hispanic. So you just, I just got adopted as a Catholic, right? Um, and in 2010, I was going to a, um, a conference because friends had invited me to this conference and I didn't know what kind of conference it was. I wasn't a believer. Um, and the night before we went, there was this encounter that I saw my friend have with God, and it really provoked something in me. And I was sitting at home one night before this conference, and I, I had never really prayed to God. I feel like I probably prayed more to Mary than I did to Jesus, because <laughs> I had context for how to pray to Mary. Um, and I remember sitting there one night, like meditating on this encounter my friend had. It was very powerful. And I thought, man, is God that real? Like, is that how Jesus really works? Like he's He's not just in the priest or in this book, but he's actually real. And I remember thinking, um, Lord, if you'll do for me what you did for my friend tonight at this conference tomorrow, I'll follow you every day for the rest of my life. And I said, but what I want you to do is I want you to tell somebody something about me. And I want it to be the guy teaching at the conference. I just want him to call me out and just say whatever he wants, you know, um, which never put the Lord to the test. Never. Like, he loves me because I'm so ignorant. Uh, and so the next day we go to this Bethel conference, um, and there's this guy named Chris Valentin teaching. And I don't know who Chris Valentin is. I thought, this guy's pretty funny. I didn't know you could say jokes in church. Like, again, Catholic, right? Um, he's wearing tennis shoes. There's no priests. Um, nobody's wearing rosaries. I was like, this is very laid back. I could see why people are Christian. Uh, and during his message, at the end, he, he starts... He's like, there's about 10 people here who I really feel the Lord highlighting. And so I just want to call you out. And so I'm thinking, this is it. This is my God moment. And so he goes through numbers one through nine, and I don't get called at all. And I was like starting to feel discouraged. And I remember I was next to my now wife, and my phone was on the ground. And we were just friends at the time. I was still kind of partying, and my friends were evangelizing me. So they brought me to this conference to just... You know, like when you're trying to get people saved and you're kind of forcing it? Like, oh, you got to come to this. You got to come to that. And I was like, I just gave in. Fine, I'll go to your stupid conference. Like, whatever. Um, so I bent down to pick up my phone to text this girl to see, like, hey, is anybody throwing a party tonight or whatever? Because I had really felt like, man, I, ha I felt like I had this real encounter yesterday. I saw something real. But, but I'm not going to get called. Like, I don't think the Lord's going to answer. And when I looked up from my phone... I could just feel like the room staring at me. You know, like when you feel like people are staring at you and you don't know if it's like you have a booger or something in your teeth, right? But you could feel like people staring at you. And, and Katie, my now wife, she bumped me and she said, hey, uh, Chris called you. And I remember I just looked from the stage. I was about probably from here to Gary. There's about 800 people in the room. And uh, he said, I feel like the Lord said you've called him out and tonight he's challenging you. He's calling you out. And um, again, I don't know who this guy is, right? I don't know about Bethel. I don't know about all that stuff. Um, and so he starts prophesying over me, and he said, you know, I, I've probably done this maybe three times my whole life, but I feel like I'm supposed to lay my mantle on your life. Um, and you're going to, you'll actually walk and see a double of everything I've ever touched and saw in your life. And my friends are freaking out because they're like, this is Chris Valentin. And I'm like, I don't know this dude <laughs> from Adam. I just know that he's funny. Uh, and that was the night I got saved. That was 2010, January 10th, 2010. And, um, and to be honest, I have seen so much in my life that I felt like I don't, I don't deserve. And it was because of what like, I felt like the Lord used Chris 
to sort of plant in my life. You know, like when God gives you something that you don't deserve? We're going to talk about that tonight. Like, do you know what Jesus did for you you don't deserve? You know why he did what he did for you? Can anybody answer that? I, okay, by trade, I teach. This is, I teach students, though. And the students range from 18 to like 65 at Lifestyle. But the difference between students and you is they, they pay to hear me teach. You're like, I don't know who you are. You're not that funny. And we'll see how good you know the word, right? Like, that's where we're at right now. But do you, do you, when you think about things like this, do you think, why did Jesus actually come? Does anybody want to answer that? Okay, love. That's, that's a safe answer. That's safe. That's good. That'll, that'll actually do. Um, relationship, she's saying to change the world upside down. Um, okay, let me ask a different question. What's the most important relationship in your life? So you would say God, right? Gary's like, sure, yeah, whatever. <laughs> he said, Gail, that's the safest answer you can give. Uh, you're right. It's your relationship between you and the Lord. And you know, there's actually a ceremony that we celebrate when people come together. What's that ceremony called? Marriage, right? What, what's a biblical word for marriage? Covenant. So tonight we're going to talk about covenant. Are you cool with that? Okay, I'm not here to entertain you. Like, I'm not really that charismatic. I probably won't move much. Like, I just, I'm a teacher, so I'm going to teach. But my my goal is not to give you information, but to give you enough so that you will be transformed. And I felt prophetically that there are marriages here in this yard that need a renewal of covenant. Like, you you need a fresh reset button to understand why you married the person to your left or to your right. Okay? All right, here's what I want to do. So I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm a little bit, like I love, I love the Bible. It's why I'm in school. It's why I'll probably be in school for another six to eight years if my wife has enough grace for me to not cook dinner or do dishes because I'm studying Hebrew or something like that. Uh, but I love school because what I feel like is in the Christian life, we could say we believe in Jesus, but what does that mean? How would you explain that? Right? And so... My goal tonight is to give you information with the goal to transform you, transformation, okay? Because information is great. You can go on Twitter. You can go on Instagram. You can get information wherever you want, however you want, at whatever time of the day. And you probably read more news headlines than any other generation's ever read their whole life. But when it comes to Christianity, we're the least changed generation most of the time. Because we just have information, but we don't do anything with it. Okay, so tonight I want to give you information, and I hope you do something with it. Are you cool with that? Okay. So does anybody want to answer this question? And I pretend like I'm in a classroom. This is a classroom environment for me. This is not a church service. Like, I'm not a preacher. I'm just not. Uh, I'm not going to give you three points and give you a sermon illustration. I'm just going to give you biblical theology, and then you get to go home and do something with it. Cool? All right. So who was the first person to create a covenant? Somebody answer. Okay. Gary was partially right, but it was the Lord. Covenant is actually the Lord's idea. It wasn't Abram's idea. It was the Lord's idea. And multiple times throughout the Old Testament, we see God taking proprietary um, ownership over the covenant. He would tell David, he would tell Abram, he'd tell Noah, this is my covenant in which you are to obey. 
So the idea of covenant is actually not something you created or established. You just joined it. And the reality of what covenant does is that one day you will stand before him and be responsible for his covenant that he formed with you. Like, this is serious stuff. Sometimes I feel like in the Western church, we just like, we just like going to church on Sundays, and it's great. And I don't really like what the pastor said. Didn't care for the worship team. I felt like they keep singing the same thing. Why did they sing the same thing for 20 minutes? Like, and we're so opinionated as Americans. We're so opinionated. But you, you are where you are because of what he's done for you. But you're very opinionated people. I feel like William's dad was here, right? How, how many of you were here, like, was it last year or two years ago? And what I love about older people when they teach is they just don't care. They don't care. Like, they'll just say things that offend people, and they just don't care. And I was telling Gary, like, I want to be at that place, but I care too much about people (laughs) to be rude to them. But tonight, like, if I say something that comes across very dogmatic, it's not not to be rude, but it's uh, it's to awaken you, oh sleeper, to quicken you back to the foundation of return to first love. Return to your covenant. This is not just about a Christian life. This is the Lord marrying us. And one day he'll return as our bridegroom with his city. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, I promise I'm going to start teaching. So I want to get into Genesis 15. This is actually where we see the first time that the Lord encounters Abram. And I'm going to read it very quickly because I don't want to take too much time. I know the sun's already going down, and there's other things that the Lord has for tonight for some, for some of you. Um, but I'm going to read Genesis 15 really fast. It's only, I think, probably 20 verses or so, so you could just listen to me. Are you cool with that? All right, I'm going to read out of the ESV. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Fear not, Abram. Now, a little backstory. The Lord came to him and said, Fear not. Does anybody know why? Because what just happened in, in the earlier chapters is that Abram rescues Lot out of another nation, and he murders people to rescue him. So Abram's kind of freaking out. So when the Lord comes to him, he says, Abram, fear not. He's, he's introducing who he is to Abram. Fear not. I am your shield. I'm your reward. And Abraham said, oh, Lord, what, what are you going to give me? Right? That's like, that's how it is in America, right? Hey, I love you. Well, what are you going to do for me? Right? Aren't we like that a lot? <laughs> so Abraham's like, hey, that's great. You're my shield, reward, whatever that means. If you're my reward, what do I get from this, right? And he says, oh Lord, what what are you going to give me? For I continue to be childless and the heir of my house of Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, behold, you've given me no children. And a member of my own household will have to be my heir. And verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. And look at the number of the stars, if you're able to number them. That's a joke, by the way, that the Lord told Abram. I don't know if you understand that the Lord is very sarcastic. So it's biblical to be sarcastic sometimes, right? And he said, look, look, Abram, look at all the stars. Can you number them? This is what your offspring will be like. In verse 6, it says, and Abram believed the Lord and he counted it righteous. In verse 7, and he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur, the land of the Chaldeans, to give you this land. But Abraham said, Oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he didn't didn't cut the birds in the half. 
And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was going down, Abraham fell asleep. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. This is what I, I want to pause real quick. What I love about this story. See, we read the Old Testament. How many of you struggle sometimes with the story of the Old Testament? Can you just be honest with me? Raise your hand. If like you, when you read it, you're like, how is this the same God? I don't understand. Raise your hand high. You're shaking your head, but you're not raising your hand. Okay, cool. Thank you. The Lord tells Abram what Israel's going to suffer before they even become created beings. He's, he's, he's a good enough father that he's like, hey, I'm going to form this covenant with you. And by the way, your people will be enslaved for about 400 years, but I will protect them and I will uphold my end of the covenant for them. He warns him way ahead of time. And he said this, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that enslaves them. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. But as for you, you will go to your fathers in peace. He's telling them, but you're going to die. That's always encouraging. Um, and you shall be buried in a good old age. Verse 16. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites will not yet be complete. And this is what I want to focus on. Verse 17. When the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces. And on that day... The Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates. Uh, and then he goes on to list different people groups. What I want to focus on is that word covenant. In Hebrew, it's the word barit. Can you say that? Barit. You just learned a, a word in biblical languages tonight. If I don't teach you anything, you'd be like, hey, I learned one thing, and it was barit, right? It's one Hebrew word. What that word means is to bond or bind together. Okay, so when we think about covenant, it's just to bring two things that were separated together, okay? Now, a covenant, how, I'm gonna, I might use some fancy lingo, and if I lose you, at any point, just interrupt me and say, you lost me. I'm totally cool with that. I tell our students at school all the time, listen, like, this is, you came here tonight. You decided to come and hear me, and you don't know me. So I'm cool with, like, if you're like, hey, you lost me. I'm cool with that. I don't want to leave you, Okay. I want to go together so that when Revelation comes, we're enjoying it together. Does that make sense? All right. But a covenant, in its purest form, is about bringing together two different things that have two unique abilities that cannot be fully expressed unless they come together. So, for example, take a man and a wife. You can't have offspring unless you have one female and one male. And until those two come together, then do you get an offspring? Does that make sense? Do we, do we need to go over biology? Because the news needs to learn it, right? Like, two men cannot have a baby. Two women together cannot have a baby. It doesn't work that way. That's not the way God designed it, okay? Even though you are inundated and brainwashed by the news, like, that somehow that possibly works. It doesn't work. Now, covenants in the ancient Near East, I might say that a lot tonight, the ancient Near East is the time period of which Abram, all the way up to, like, the Israelites in, in, in enslavement to, to Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt, that's called the ancient Near East because they lived in the East during the ancient times. Isn't that profound? Um, but what covenants did in the ancient Near East is they actually created kinship amongst people who were not related by blood. So 
you may not know this, but family relationships, kinship, was the most important relationship in the ancient world. Some of us, how many of you feel like that family vibe when you come to like GGG? You feel that community vibe, right? How many of you feel that when you're like here? Like you feel like, wow, this feels like family. This feels good. We still don't understand what family ties were in the ancient world. Like none of us would probably really know. Now, if you went to the Middle East today, for example, if you're a Muslim and you renounce the Muslim faith for the Christian faith, you know what your family does. They renounce you. That's how deep the family honor and ties are. So in the ancient world, family relationships were the most important aspect of your entire life. Like it wasn't about careers. It wasn't about wealth. It wasn't what you could do for other people and how popular you were and how many social media followers you had, right? Or what kind of shoes you wore to church on Sunday, right? The Nike high tops or whatever it may be. It was who are the people that I am in covenant with? That's what matters. And so we see throughout the Old Testament, we see um, five distinct covenants. We see the, the, the covenant with Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, and then there's the last covenant. Do you remember who came to, to create a new covenant for us? This is the right answer every time. If you just say God, it's going to be the right. It's like C on the SATs. Remember your teacher? Like, if you don't know what to do, just bubble C. Okay, so if you don't know how to answer, just say God. I'll take that. That's fine. The concept of covenant for Israel dominates their entire religious life. If you were to go to Israel today and people are sitting at the wailing wall, wailing for a Mashiach, a Messiah to come, it's because they are waiting for him to come fulfill the covenant that he promised he would fulfill through the lineage of David. Covenant, let me say this. If the Bible had flesh and blood, covenant would be the entire skeletal system on which it hangs. But us in the West don't understand covenant. It's a term we throw out. It's a term we hear during, um, you know, a marriage procession. It's, it's a term we may, you know, use when we really need God to show up and, and, and provide a miracle for our friend who's dying. And we, we're in covenant with you, Lord. But a lot of us don't live like we're in covenant with the Lord. And so tonight I want to teach you a little bit about how covenants and treaties worked in the Old Testament. Are you cool with that? So what we're going to do is we're going to get a history lesson. In the Old Testament, and I tell the students all the time, that we're going to talk about Jesus, because if you don't, it's illegal. Like, you can't preach and not talk about Jesus. And then I'm going to exhort you and encourage you about covenant. And then I feel like the Lord wants to actually move on your marriages. Are you cool with that? Okay, cool. All right. So as Westerners, we kind of suck. I'll just be honest. Like, we're, we're very ethnocentric. Does anybody know what that word means? It means that we judge and perceive outside communities, nations, and cultures and we judge them through our own culture. So, so we go to a place like Israel, or we go to a place like Africa as, you know, ignorant Western missionaries for the first time, and we go, you guys can live off of raw goat? Because we perceive, how can you do what we don't do? Because we believe America is the elite form of culture, right? Wrong. <laughs> we have a long way to go. <laughs> Um, but we're, we're ethnocentric, meaning we just we think about outside people through our own lens. And in order to see how the biblical authors thought and saw, we kind of have to take a little road trip tonight. Are you okay with that? Okay. Nobody answered, but I'll just assume you said yes. Okay. So the ancient Near East treaties. So how many of you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? They were founded about 1946 through 1950s. When archaeologists discovered 
the buried Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were able to translate what it said, it rocked a lot of the academic world. Like a lot of your commentaries of your Bibles that you probably grew up with or your grandparents and great-grandparents immediately became outdated based on the information they had just from the Dead Sea Scrolls of what the early church really believed about things like covenant and about the resurrection of Christ. And what does it mean to take communion? They, they would believe that, yes, these are elements, but when it touches our mouth, it turns into the flesh and blood of Jesus. So we were able to discover brand new revelations that we hadn't had for centuries when they found these. Um, and what they found during the excavation were these things on little tablets called treaties. And the way a treaty worked, and, and I have a list here, by the way, because I teach, I have PDF notes with a bunch of resources. If you want to judge this teaching tonight, and you're like, this guy's a heretic, I have notes and resources for you if you want them. I just, Gary can figure out how to get them to you. Um, but these treaty tablets were discovered during these archaeological excavations. And what these treaties, what they said was it was references to these like international contracts or covenants between different nations based on what the nation needed out of another nation. So for example, Ukraine and Russia, this is a perfect example. How many of you know what's, you, you understand Ukraine and Russia? You live under a rock? I don't know. I, I, some people don't watch the news. I watch and pray, like Jesus says, watch and pray. Um, but the uprising of what's going on in, in, in with Ukraine and Russia is that Ukraine formed a treaty with Russia and gave them nuclear weapons and they formed a treaty which said, listen, we're going to give you these weapons, Russia, but our treaty is that you'll never use them or warfare against us. That's what the whole uprising is about, is that Russia now feels threatened by Ukraine's creation of some type of new nuclear weapons and so they've invaded them. So Russia has broken covenant with Ukraine. Okay, And this is how it worked in antiquity, in the ancient times. So we have a ton of treaties, but what's really, really important to understand is that during the time of Exodus, when the Israelites came out of the waters, we actually have a real tablet of the Treaty of Kadesh between Ramses II and the Hittites. You could go see this, and you could Google it right now, the Treaty of Kadesh, and you could see this little tablet with all this writing on it. And long story short, Egypt... And the Hittites formed this covenant based on, we're just not going to kill each other. Okay? That's like a pretty good covenant. Drew, we won't kill each other. Sound good? (laughs) Um, And the two types of treaties were the parity treaty. Everybody say parity treaty. That was between equals. We're equals. But but you know what? We're equals, but we're going to create a covenant to always watch each other's backs. But the most popular form of a treaty was called the Caesarean Vassal Treaty. How many of you ever, have, has anybody heard that term before? Caesarean Vassal Treaty? Good. I'm really glad nobody knows because that's the whole message for tonight. This was between a greater and a lesser party. Okay. Now, Israel, I, I wish I had a whiteboard. See, at LCU, I got the clicker. I got my PowerPoints. I got everything. I don't have anything here. Okay? So imagine there's a rainbow over me. Can you see it? You're lying. There's no rainbow. Okay, imagine there's a rainbow over me. On this side, you have um, the land of Ur, where Abram comes out of, where God calls him out. Uh, you have Mesopotamia and Babylon. 
And then up here you would have kind of Assyria, and up here you would have the Hittites, and over here you would have Egypt. But you know what would be in the, in the very center of the rainbow? Israel. So for the Hittites to form or do some type of trade with Ur or Mesopotamia, what do you think they had to go through to get there? See, you're paying attention. There's two people that are actually paying attention. So Israel actually formed treaties with all these other nations throughout the Old Testament because they couldn't trade unless they went through Israel. Now, the Suzerian Vassal Treaty, I'm going to explain what this is, but the primary purpose was to establish a relationship between two parties in which the interest of the suzerain was priority, meaning the greater party. Their interests were the greatest interests. It didn't really matter about the vassal. Does anybody, is anybody tracking me right now? Suzerian vassal treaty. Just think big brother, little brother treaty. Are you cool with that? Some people are like vassal, like Vaseline. Exactly. Um, now Israel became vassals to many Suzerians throughout their history. The Hittites, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, all because Israel is a small nation. And so sometimes they needed protection military protection. Sometimes they needed provision. They needed things from these other nations that they couldn't provide for themselves. So they would form a treaty or a covenant with other nations. Does that make sense? Okay. So the Caesarian, when they went into a covenant with a vassal, they agreed to provide benefits such as military protection or even grants like financial provision or grain or, or whatever it may be, animals, um, and in response, the vassal would owe loyalty to the suzerain because you've given me what I can't afford to, to, to gain myself. And so now, because of what you've given me, I commit to being obedient to you. Does that make sense? Okay, we're going somewhere. I know for some of you, you're like, this is a lot of information. Good. Um, now, what the Suzerian Vassal Treaty did is it created fictive kinship between two people. So the promised relationship was actually the primary motivation for obedience. So let's imagine Gary and I, right? Gary has seven businesses, I have one. Gary has seven times the economic resource I have, I only have one. So in order to form a covenant with Gary, we have to sign a contract. We have to create some type of document. And we have to conduct some type of ritual to form a covenant, right? But my, my motivating factor in forming a covenant with Gary is not just because I need money from his business. I want to be in relationship with Gary. And so in the ancient Near East, they would create treaties based on the relationships that they needed in order to survive. Are you, are you with me? Are you good? You're really quiet. Maybe it's because you're just blown away. Um, now, a Caesarian was a king. He was an authority-type figure over whether it be a nation or a local geographical area. But he had rulership. He had authority. He was usually like a divine type figure. Okay? So think of somebody like um, Julius Caesar. He would have been like a Caesarian type person, right? And what they would offer is security and provision. And the Caesarian could form multiple covenants with vassals. So if Gary owns seven businesses, there is no number that he is limited to with vassals. He could sign covenants with 300 vassals if he wanted to. Now, as a vassal, I was only allowed to have one Caesarian covenant. I couldn't offer covenant contracts to other people, and if I did, it would be considered treason. 
Okay? You see, we're, we're, we're going to go somewhere, I promise. And if each party, once this covenant was established, if each party was to obey the commands outlined in this covenant contract, the Bible talks about that they showed each other chesed. You know what chesed is? It means like loyal love, loving kindness, faithfulness, obedience. Okay? But if a vassal was to take another lord, it would be treason, right? And sometimes they were subject to death. If they replaced the original suzerain with a new one, they could be murdered and killed off. Like that's how strict it was in the ancient Near East. And these treaties, when they would form them, and I'm going to explain how it worked, they were to be read out loud annually at whatever vassal location they would have it at. So, okay, we're going to go on a sidetrack. Ready? I, when Moses comes down with the two tablets in Deuteronomy, why does he have two tablets? What did he write on them? See, in, if you Google it, it's five commandments on one, right? Like children's Bible, five commandments on the other. But we know through archaeological discovery, that's not how people scribed on tablets. If you, go, if you Google right now, type in like ancient Near Eastern tablet, you would see a stone probably this big with lines of writing, like hundreds of lines of writing. And what would happen is once they formed this covenant, the Caesarean would take the tablet because they didn't have like paper. You understand? Right? They didn't have like college ruled paper. <laughs> uh, they didn't have iPhones. So they would just write on stone. So one party would take one copy and the other party would take another copy. But when the Caesarean is God, he doesn't really need a copy because he doesn't forget. So what does Moses do with the two copies? He puts them in the ark, right? Um, that's just like a little historical fact. Uh, but this is the sort of covenant that actually God creates with Moses on Mount Sinai. And the Caesarean vassal treaty in our language today would be like a father and son contract, a father and son relationship covenant. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Can we think of it like that? Okay. And for us, this is a brand new concept, but for Israel and the surrounding nations for thousands of years, they were used to this. So let me, let me say this. So when, a when Yahweh comes to Abram in Genesis 15, this is not the first time that Abram has ever heard of this. When, when Yahweh, and I say that, but when the Lord comes to Abram and says, I'm going to form a covenant with you and we're going to create an animal sacrifice and somebody's going to walk through it, Abraham understands based on the nations that the Israelites and the Egyptians and the Assyrians have already created before. Does that, does that make any sense? Okay. And, and that for you may be like, this is blasphemy. No, no, this is actually confirmation that God is in covenant with us so much that he'll use our natural resources that we've already created to form relationship with us. So this idea of covenant, though it was God's original idea for Israel, it's, it wasn't a new thing for Abram. He would have understand what that meant. Are you, are you tracking with me? Because when we read the story, we're like, that's really weird. Animal, like there's animals being separated. There's a, a, a tea kettle pot, whatever it is, I don't know, with fire. How many of you have read the story and you're like, this is bizarre. Like, what do animals have to do with it? What does fire and smoke have to do with it? And why is Abraham asleep? Like, this makes no sense, right? And so the treaty form worked like this, and I want to briefly go over this, and then we'll move on. There would be an introduction where the suzerain would introduce themselves. I am so-and-so. And what this did was this, the emphasis is placed upon the majesty and power of the suzerain upon the introduction. Then it would go down into a prologue, and the suzerain, after introducing themselves, would explain 
what they are capable of doing or what they have already done for the vassal. So remember when the Lord comes to Abram, what does he say? I am the Lord, your God. I am your shield. I am your reward. He's telling Abraham, you did not fight by yourself. I did it for you and I'll be your shield. He's introducing himself to him. And then it goes into stipulations where the obligations imposed upon and accepted by the vassal, basically meaning like, you're not allowed to have other gods before you. If I'm going to form a contract with Gary, Gary would tell me you're not allowed to form a contract with another business. I'm going to be your sole business. I will be your sole provider. And to which I would say, okay, I accept that. Then there would be witnesses to treaties. Now, if you haven't gone to Bible college and maybe the Old Testament's hard for you, what you have to realize is that in the ancient Near East, the belief in deities was like our addiction to social media. It dominates their minds. You're consumed by it. Deities were a thing that, I mean, you could, you could go to, I don't know, you can go to Greece and Rome today, but back in the day, it was like Starbucks. There was a God on every corner, whether it be a statue, whether it be an altar, a memorial. So deities in the Old Testament actually worked as witnesses to the covenants when they were formed. So actually, if you read Ezekiel 17, okay, God actually responds to, I believe it's, uh, he's responding as a witness to the covenant that was formed in Ezekiel 17, stating, even though the vassal and the suzerain didn't include Yahweh in it, he's saying, no, they've broken this covenant because I witnessed it when they formed it. And so he's acting as a witness. So they would call upon the gods and they would say, we call upon the gods to be witnesses to this covenant. And if any of us violate it, the gods will know and they'll strike us. Okay. Then there was blessings and curses. Wait, this sounds a lot like Deuteronomy. When Moses is on that mountain and there's fire and there's smoke and God's introducing himself and he starts telling Moses, this is what I've done for you and this is what I'll do for you. And, and, you, and, you, got, and you will be my witness and I will be your witness. And here's what you do. Here's what will happen to you if you obey. How many of you have ever read like Deuteronomy chapters 20 through 32? And here's what's going to happen to you if you don't obey. There will be a blessing and a curse, right? And then there, last step, there would be a sacrifice and a meal. And that would seal the covenant deal. And when a meal was present, it made covenant tangible, okay? And what would happen is when the suzerain and the vassal created this covenant, an animal would be brought in, just like in Genesis 15. The animal would be cut in two and they would be separated. And usually, usually, the vassal would walk through because he's the weaker party. And he would out loud say, if I do not uphold this covenant, what happened to the animal will happen to me. Okay? Most of the verbal commitment would come from the vassal because they don't have really a dog in the fight. They need a lot of help. Okay? Now, in Genesis 15, we see, we see something that has already been practiced prior to the time of Abram. And you probably wouldn't notice, but in biblical historical scholarship, people were already doing this usually around even 3000 BC, right? 2500 BC. These things were already happening, these trees. They, I mean, they've discovered them. So when, again, when the Lord comes to Abram, as soon as he's saying, I want you to take an animal and split it in two, Abraham's tracking. God's going to form a covenant with me. I, like, this is how it works. So God desires to form a relationship with man. 
specifically Abram. And God will, God uses this contemporary model to communicate his divine plan. Okay. Now, does anybody know why God would tell them they were going to suffer for 400 years? Does anybody know where and when Israel suffered for about 400 years? Egypt. In Egypt. And if you read Exodus 12, it literally says, and, and Israel was held captive until 430 years. So God's telling Abraham already what's going to happen in Egypt. He's warning him. And he tells him, but I'll be faithful. And I'm actually, you know what? I'm actually going to bring judgment upon the people that afflict my vassal. And in verse 6, it said that Abraham believed him and, it would, and God considered it righteousness, which means right relationship. Okay. So I have a question for you. You ready for this? I, I don't have much more time. I promise it might. I know it's like a fire hose, but it'll start making sense when we get to Jesus. It all makes sense when you get to Jesus. Why a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch? Have you ever thought about that? See, sometimes I feel like when we sign up for our Bible devotional on your iPhone or Android and it says, oh, today's Genesis 15. Let me just read it so I can click the button that says I read it, but you didn't really read it. Like you read through it, but you never meditated on it. Well, think about this. What do the biblical authors use to describe God's presence when Israel comes out of Egypt? What are they led by? A pillar of fire and clouds? Okay, this is starting to make sense. Wait a second. What happens when Moses goes up to Sinai? It says that there were thunderings and fire and smoke. What about when God's presence in Exodus 40 comes and it actually, upon completion of the tabernacle, when Moses completes it, what happens? Smoke and fire consume it, right? It doesn't destroy it. It just comes upon it and it fills it. But what about when Solomon built the temple and it was dedicated? What happened to that? As soon as the ark was placed, it said that smoke filled the temple and there was like a fire. So the biblical authors are trying to show, or what about this? Remember when John sees the throne in heaven in Revelation? He uses the exact same grammatical structure as it was describing Sinai. There were thunderings, fire, and smoke. So when God's personal presence shows up usually in the Bible, that purity and power that generated the universe, it usually appears in a manifestation of lightning, fire, or smoke. So when the, the fire pot and the smoke show up, we know that God is present in Genesis 15. Does that make sense? Am I getting you to think a little bit about this? That's the goal. So where is Abram when God shows up? Does anybody remember? He's asleep because it's nighttime. Give the guy a break. We always judge people like, you fell asleep, you're dumb. Like... <laughs> It's okay. You, you're probably falling asleep right now, okay? Like, but what does God do when he shows up? What does the, what does the, the flaming torch pot do? What does it do? Do you remember? Wait a second, wait a second. It passes between the animal sacrifice? Do you know what's happening here? is that a suzerain is walking through the sacrifice saying, if the vassal doesn't honor the covenant, may I, the suzerain, become like the animal. So hold on, wait a second. The vassal is supposed to walk through the sacrifice. 
because the vassal will pay if he's disobedient to the covenant. But God's presence shows up and walks through the sacrifice. So God is showing Abraham, Abraham, you will be unfaithful and I will become like this for you. So that kind of makes sense when like we get to the life of Jesus a little bit, right? Should we get there? All right, let's go there. Okay. Does that make sense? Are you, are you understanding what's going on here? So let's, let's just think about this. Why does Jesus come to earth to die? To uphold his end of the covenant. It's not just about your sin. Your sin isn't that powerful. It's because God sought a relationship with people and said, They've, the, I know as I form a covenant that they're going to break it, so I'll walk through for them. And I will become broken for them to heal the relationship they were supposed to honor in the beginning. That's why Jesus comes. That's why he breaks bread and says, this is my body. And this is the cup of my blood, for it is the new covenant, right? Okay. So I want to read one thing. I know it's getting dark. I'm sorry. Are you guys hanging in there? Are you guys good? Okay. All right. I usually have two hours at Lifestyle, and I have a PowerPoint. I don't have any of that. So you, you got to work with me, please, for the love of God. Work with me, okay? Okay. <laughs> Isaiah 52. Actually, we'll, we'll just go to Isaiah 53. You don't have to go there. I'm doing all the hard work for you, like a, like a suzerain. I'll do it for you, Okay. Isaiah 53 is one of the most profound chapters in all of your Bible. It's one of the most profound chapters in all of the Bible. It says this, Who is believed from us what he has heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him. This is talking about Jesus. That's going to come one day. And he had no form of majesty that we should look at him. There was no beauty that we should behold him. He was despised and rejected by men. A, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was like one whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not, but surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. And we esteemed him stricken. We, we, we thought of him as being cursed. And we thought he was smitten by God and afflicted. Right here, ready? But he was actually pierced for our transgression. And he was crushed for our iniquity. And upon him was the chastisement of peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now, if you go back to chapter 52 and verse 14, it says that his appearance was so marred it was beyond any human resemblance. What does that remind you of? Probably like the animal that they had to sacrifice before forming covenant. He became marred. You couldn't, under, you couldn't see his resemblance anymore. But wait a second. Why? Because he was pierced for your transgression. His body was broken so that we could still step into covenant with him. He became the suzerain for us. Does that make sense? Okay. How does Jesus accomplish this? Well, in Mark 14, we know. He takes the cup and he takes the bread. Now, this is very prophetic. Jesus starts a communion tradition. The Eucharist, that's what you'd call it. That's a fancy term for it. And in this, Jesus somehow says that, that the body he takes, the bread, he breaks the bread... He separates it in two. And he says, this is my body that is broken for what? For you. Any Catholics in the room? Okay. This is my body that was broken for you. Do this 
in remembrance of me. Well, wait a second. In the ancient Near East, what did they used to do with the covenant? Well, they would read it aloud publicly, periodically, so that people would remember. This is a covenant that you form. So when we take like communion, we're remembering the covenant that we have formed with him. Okay. Then he says, and this is the cup of my blood, which is the new covenant for you. So he's broken, he's bloody, and somehow this is a new covenant, okay? Because this is the ultimate suzerain vassal transaction happening. When Jesus dies, is buried and resurrected, did you know, remember that word chesed, loyal love? Did you know that God manifests chesed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? God manifests loyal love by crushing his son. It says in Isaiah that it pleased him to crush his son. Have you ever read that? Why would it please a father to crush his son? Because he got his covenant partner back. That's you. See, some of us think, well, th- yeah, I, that, okay, cool. Like, no, 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 no. God crushed his son so that the covenant that you violated would be whole again. And even if you violate it every day, there's blood speaking a better word over you. And there's a man on the mercy seat who walked through as a sacrifice for you, crying out on your behalf for your good. Do you understand that? And for some of us, we just need to go home and just meditate on some of this stuff. Because we've become so numb to the Christian life. We don't understand that. We know that Jesus died for my sin. No, 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 no. It was way bigger than that. Jesus died so that you could be in proximity to him again. Okay, sorry, I'm preaching at you. I don't want to do that. So how does God manifest loyal love in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Well, he chose to suffer for our failure to uphold the end of, our end of the covenant so that we could just be in relationship with him again. Now, does anybody remember what the primary motivation was for covenant in the ancient Near East? Remember I said it earlier? What was the primary motivation Relationship. Relationship. Did you know that six out of the ten commandments that the Lord gives Moses have to do with the relationship with other people? Sixty percent of the ten commandments are about relationship. I feel like the Lord is saying something in Scripture. If we would be slow enough to understand and really try to discern what he's saying. Therefore, if, if 60% of the commandments of the, of the covenant in Deuteronomy include relationship, covenant may just extend to the relationships around you, right? Is that like a logical conclusion? Like we're, we're not just in covenant with the Lord. We're in covenant with each other. Even if you're married, I get it. Even if you're single, you're still in covenant with the community in the body of Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm going to kind of kind of wrap up and then we'll just kind of move into something else. In John 13, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. How has Jesus loved you? That is the love in which you are commanded, a new commandment I give to you. Like the one who became slaughtered so we could have unity, who, who demonstrated a costly sacrifice, Jesus is saying, how I've loved you, I'm commanding you to love each other. 
See, in the Christian life, we just like to put up with each other. And God forbid, I have to see you at church and say hi to you. Because I know what you did on Facebook. You went to that bar, you heathen. Or you, you went and saw that new Marvel movie. Like, we have so many issues with each other. And the one who deserved to have issues with us chose not to. I just want that to sink in. The, the one who had the ability to refuse costly love to you chose not to. But yet we withhold costly love to people all the time because we don't understand covenant. Paul says this in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, probably somebody has this tattooed on their arm here, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, I'm going to stick a fork in your, your theology tire tonight, okay? This has nothing to do with your body. It's preached all the time. Offer your bodies as a sacrifice. It has nothing to do with your body. Paul is writing to six churches throughout the Roman Empire who are divided over ethical standards. People that feel, oh, see, now it's quiet. See, the church in the West, we're very divided. We think, well, we're charismatic, so we've got truth that you Presbyterians don't have. And then the Anglicans say, well, our tradition is holier than yours. And we're divided. We're a divided body. So when Paul's writing to the church in Rome, the church is, let's just say that, he's not talking about their physical bodies. He says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So he just went from plural to singular without us even realizing it. So this is what I would say to you as Christians. I appeal to you, believers, to come together as one sacrifice. You're not to be scattered and divide. You're to come together. And what does he say? Which is holy and acceptable and which is worship to God. Well, I just like Spotify worship. I don't want to get together with the Anglicans. I don't want to get together with the Baptists. Paul's saying, please, present your bodies as one sacrifice. And not only that, but a living sacrifice. Why would Paul use covenant terms? Because now you're upholding what the suzerain started for you. You're the living sacrifice. You're a living sacrifice. You're a living Jesus. Let's just say that. Does that make sense? The Son of God was a sacrifice to you so that you could become a sacrifice to the people around you. So when you read Romans 12.1 and you think, how do I offer my body? Do I skip McDonald's? Like, should I fast breakfast? Like, how do I offer my body as a living sacrifice? Should I run two miles a day as like some new Christian spiritual fast? If I lose 10 pounds on the keto diet, it's because I'm offering my body as a living sacrifice. I wish Paul was here. He'd say, no, no, they were divided. And I'm just begging them to come together as one. Because there's how many bodies? One body. It's, and we have to start acting like one body. Okay? All right. What about this one? Ready? Wives, are you ready? I want you to look at your husbands. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's covenant language. I would say this to husbands and to wives, that you are to love everybody around you as Christ has loved you. For he gave himself up. That means, like the suzerain who sacrificed his life for us, a vassal, 
we get to now, because we're one with the Lord, how many of you believe that? We now get to act as a suzerain for the vassals around us, for the poor, the outcast, the lame, the orphan, the widow. This is what scripture is whispering all through its pages. That you, who used to be a vassal, who used to be weak and have nothing, have now been adopted into a relationship in which you get to act as an ambassador of a suzerain for the vassals around you. Okay. Because this is what I want you to get. Covenant is costly. It, it, it sells, if you put it on a Comfort Colors t-shirt in a cool font, people will buy it. If you print it at the print sign shop down the street for your church, in the lobby where, oh, we're, we're a covenant community, oh, people will sign up for your membership class. But very few of us understand true covenant. I, I was even thinking back to, to, to my time with, with Gary and Gail, and there's things we've walked through. We were talking today, like, there's things that I've had to walk through in my life that if I didn't choose covenant, I wouldn't have done it. If, if, if I had to, you know, be subjected to spiritual abuse or uh, some leader that stricken me or believed something about me and, and, and removed me from their life, and then, then they come back and say, hey, I want to be in relationship with you. If I didn't choose kingdom covenant, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And that's the, that's the legacy we have to live as Christians. It's not about your spiritual gifts. I say that as a charismatic. Your spiritual gifts aren't that great. And they're not even eternal. Like you won't even have them forever. They're not that great. They, they're equipment to serve a purpose. But in the church, we build ministries around spiritual gifts. We see, I tell our students all the time, we go on a missions trip because we raised our shoes at an event. So now we're just missionaries. And we go to Africa once and see one healing. And now we're going to start an African healing ministry. Because in America, we institutionalize everything we think works. But you're created to be a people that tend to a garden. And that takes time. And that takes commitment. You're not an Amazon warehouse. You can't just hustle and pump things out. Things take time. Covenant is costly. It takes time. And if it doesn't take time and it isn't costly, your love for your neighbor isn't covenant love. It's convenient love. And that's actually not love. Like, here's what I want you to think about. When's the last time your relationship with your neighbor costs you something? Time, money, energy, resources. When's the, when's the last time you said, man, I feel like I'm just supposed to help you pay your mortgage this month? See, we talk about Acts 2 so much in the charismatic church, but we always tunnel vision it to the miraculous. We never want to talk about the fact that everybody sold everything they had and gave it to one another. We never talk about the fact that they met three times a day. God forbid if I had a party at my house three times a day, I think I would lose it. I'm preaching to the choir. I'm not there yet. I'm just not there yet, right? Life is complicated with three little kids. If you don't have kids yet, I just bless you in Jesus' name. But covenant love is costly, guys. If, if we're to be conformed to the image of the Son, Romans eight twenty eight, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Do you know what that conformity looks like? It looks like cruciformity. 
it looks like you being crucified to you. So you can look like the one who was crucified for you. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir tonight because I believe that a lot of you operate in covenant love. But my question for you would be, when's the last time it cost you? Well, let's think about this. What about your marriage? When is the last time you did something that wasn't convenient for your covenant partner? Now, I'm not, I'm not a marriage therapist. I'm not trying to create division right now. I really felt a few days ago that the Holy Spirit wanted to heal covenant marriages tonight. I felt like there was bitterness. There was tension and disagreement. There was a lot of unforgiveness for, well, if you just wouldn't have done that or if you wouldn't have left your job, we wouldn't be where we're at right now. Like if you would have just got it together, life would be easier. Our kids would be better. They wouldn't be where they're at right now. And I felt that. I felt like hostility in covenant marriages. And I feel like, you know, when the Lord kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, it's his mercy for them. It's his mercy for them because if they would have ate of the tree of life in that state, they would have remained in that state forever. But in his mercy, he sends them out. He sends them out. And I feel like tonight there's mercy upon marriages that he's not just going to send you out. He's going to deal with it. And I don't know if I'm preaching to one person, one's enough for me. Like if I flew all the way here from Tennessee, which isn't that far, so don't feel bad for me. But if I only flew here for one marriage, that's worth it to me. It's, it's worth the one out of the hundred for me. And so tonight, we're going to take communion. Are you okay with that? I hope so. That's a, that's a practice we don't do very often. In the early church, they would take communion almost daily. Why? Because remember when Jesus broke the bread and gave the blood? He said, this is my new covenant. When you eat this bread, it's my body. When you drink this blood... It's my sacrifice for you. And I want to just read something really quickly before, because sometimes we just take communion because the pastor says it's time to take communion. And for a lot of us, we don't understand why we're taking communion, so we just do it. But I want to give you a warning. I, as, as a teacher, I don't want to protect you from Scripture. I, 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 don't, I'm not to, I'm, I don't want to give you compassion where Scripture's not calling me to give you compassion. When it comes to taking communion, I want to read it right here. Taking communion with the wrong motive is the only act in all of the New Testament that has the ability to conjure up death and illness in your life. Did you know that? Let's just read it. We're going to go here. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, he's talking about communion. Is this not the fellowship in the blood of the Christ? And the bread that we break, is this not the fellowship in the body of Christ? What Paul is telling the church in Corinth, because they were taking it in haste. The rich people, I I, want to go off, but I won't. The rich people, what do rich people do? Well, they don't really have to work. Like truly rich people really don't have to work. And in the ancient days, if you were a merchant or a business owner and you were rich, you didn't have to work. You had slaves. Does that make sense? So when they got together to take the Lord's Supper once a week, the rich people would get there early with all the good food because they could afford it. But what about the poor people? Well, they have to work, so they'd come later. So Paul is addressing an issue with the church in Corinth saying, 
Guys, 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 guys. When you get together for the Lord's Supper, do you not realize that the bread is the literal fellowship of his body? He's saying that when you take the bread, Christ's body is present with you. And when you drink the blood, when you drink the wine, his body, his blood is present with you. That's why in church tradition, some people believe once it's consumed, it turns into the physical body of Christ in your body, which I'm cool with. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know. That's a mystery to me, but I will embrace that mystery. Then he goes on to say this in chapter 11. This is what I want to give you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. He took bread and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup after supper saying, this is the cup of the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, listen to this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we take this little three cent thing made in China, we all know where it comes from, okay? What Paul says, this is not just little elements. When we do this, we're proclaiming that Jesus became the covenant sacrifice for us. And we are looking forward to the day that he comes to be with us again. This isn't just like, hey, our church does communion once a month because people keep complaining in the church email. So we'll just take communion once a month and just make sure we feel better as a church. Hey, did we do communion recently? No, but we probably should, right? Yeah, we probably should do communion. That Paul is saying, you don't understand. When you take this, you're proclaiming that Christ is coming again. And then he says this in verse 27. Therefore, well, what's it there for? Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord. Well, wait a second. Now it's not even communion. Whoever drinks the cup of the Lord and eats the bread of his body will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Jesus. He's saying this. When you do this hastily, you're guilty of what Jesus died for. That is so sobering. I, I'm not, I don't mean to laugh. This is covenant. This is a cup of covenant. So when we take the cup of covenant tonight, Paul says, check your motive. So I would just assure you tonight, before you take the cup, before we do this, I want you to check your heart. I want you to think about your marriage. Think about your relationship with your children, relationship with your neighbors. Because this isn't a band-aid to fix your problem. This is a proclamation. It's a prophetic act that we declare as vassals who are faithful that we will uphold our end of the covenant for the suzerain who is Jesus. Okay? And as we take communion together, we're also declaring that we as neighbors will uphold each other in this covenant as God's covenant people. Does that make sense? Okay. So what I want to do, I don't know if any of the worship, can I just like, can we just have like maybe keys or something? I want us to just two minutes. Don't talk to your neighbor. I want you to picture what Jesus has done for you before we take this. Is that cool? Are you cool with that? And then I want to move into a time. I know, Gail, there has been a common theme, and I didn't know about this, but of covenant. And I want Gail to come up and share. And then I want to invite people up that need prayer for healing.
in their marriage. Guys, this is serious. Like, like this is really serious. This is your marriage. And the world has a lot to say about the Christian church because our divorce rate's about 53%. That's crazy. So I want to take two minutes and I want you just to meditate, like Paul says. Don't do this in haste. Meditate. We're going to take communion in about two minutes. I'll lead us. And then I'll have Gail come up and we'll do some ministry time. Are you guys cool with that? Did anybody get anything out of this? Okay. Let's take two minutes. I just want to encourage you tonight was just a night of encouragement like that the Christian life is very simple if there's one common theme from Genesis to Revelation it's that God is looking for a people that would know him and love him and be faithful to him and in return that you would love and be faithful to the people around you that's it it's not about ministry it's not about speaking it's not about missions it's just loving him and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so tonight, I feel prophetically that this act somehow, in some supernatural, mysterious way, would be a reset button on some of you who feel like you've squandered some of the covenant that you've made with your spouse and Jesus. Some of you that feel like I have been in rebellion. I actually have been guilty of the blood and body. Tonight, I feel prophetically that this is a reset for you, okay? And so we're going to take this and I'm going to have Gail come up and we're going to just lay hands on people. And even if you need healing, there is healing in the act of communion. There is healing. His body was broken for you so that you would be healed because of his body. His blood removes the effects of sin 
and his body heals you, okay? All right, so you have the bread? You guys good? All right, so Jesus, you to just hold it? Jesus, we, we're so grateful that you would love us enough to be broken for us. Jesus, I just pray that your spirit right now would come upon this bread. Lord, that you would reveal to us the cost of covenant, what it costs you to have us back, Lord, that we would get a glimpse of it so we would never, never distance ourselves from you. And we thank you for your body that was broken for us. And Lord, I pray prophetically that whatever brokenness people are facing tonight, that you would move in supernatural and tangible healing tonight as we take communion. And so we thank you for this bread. We thank you for your body. And like Paul says, we declare as we take this that you're going to come again, that you're coming for a bride that is faithfully obedient to you in covenant love. In Jesus' name, we can take it. This is tricky. You have to open it without spilling it. I spill it every time. So we're going to get, let's just pray over the blood. And Gail will share. Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was poured out for us. Lord, that your blood, like Abel's blood, Lord, you cry out for mercy for us. Lord, that your blood speaks not only a better word, but it speaks life over us. It gives life to us. Lord, and I thank you that your blood covers a multitude of sins. Lord, I pray that we would be the covenant faithful partners that don't take advantage of the blood that was shed for us on the cross. And Lord, I thank you tonight that this blood is supernaturally working in marriages tonight and relationships. That you would unite us because of what you shed for us. In Jesus' name.